Good morning. It is a privilege to have the opportunity to share with you this morning. My name is Katie Schultz. My husband, Brandon, and I have attended Lakeland for over eight years. My daughter, Carolyn, who is eight, and Julia, who is six, have always known Lakeland as their church home, and for that I am very grateful. When my daughter was in preschool, she came home one day with a question. Mama, what does God look like? She asked. I thought for a second and replied, I really don't know. You'll have to ask him. She went away satisfied, which was a relief because I'm often stumped by the questions she and her sister come up with. To be honest, I would have forgotten all about this question, except a few weeks later as I was going through her backpack and tossing tons of papers that come home, I found this. So I called her into the kitchen and asked her, can you tell me about this painting? And she said, well, remember, I asked you what God looks like, and you said I had to ask him, so I did, and this is what he showed me. I was stunned, stunned enough to have it framed and placed in our living room in prominent view to help me remember. But what I want to talk about today is remember what exactly? See, I spend a good portion of my days trying to figure things out. I want to figure out where is the very best place to live. I am on a perpetual house hunting tour. I want to figure out what is the best job for me. I want to figure out how I can do the very best job for my employer, and I want to figure out how I can best help my friends in Annapra. I also want to figure out how to be the best wife and the best mom. And I want to figure out how to be the greatest for God. The disciples had this same concern. The story is told in three of the four Gospels in Matthew 18, Mark 9, and Luke 9. We read about the disciples who are walking with Jesus and they're arguing. Jesus asks them what they're arguing about and they don't want to tell him because they were trying to figure out who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. To answer this question, Jesus does the unexpected. He brings a child over. In the Gospel of Mark, it says that Jesus took the child in his arms. He tells his disciples, Truly, unless you change and become like these little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I can only imagine that this was very confusing for them. 2,000 years ago, children were not highly valued. Babies were often discarded to die. In fact, the poorest families were able to acquire servants by raising up these discarded babies to become their slaves. Children were considered at that time to be at the very bottom of the societal hierarchy. They were not even referred to as children. The Aramaic term for children in those days was the same term that is used for slave and servant. It's one of these little people that Jesus brings before the disciples and says, Here is your model. Become like this child, and you will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this was so baffling for the disciples that less than one chapter later, in Matthew 19, as parents are starting to bring their children to Jesus to be blessed by him, the disciples rebuke them and say, Get lost! He doesn't have time for this! He has just explained that these children are the model for kingdom greatness, and they've already forgotten. He patiently reminds them yet again, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. 
Hmm. The kingdom of heaven belongs to children. So scholars have studied this a lot. And in his book, The Mystery of the Child, Martin Marty has compiled a lot of what they have to say. This is what he writes about what scholars think about this verse. He says, Although the commentators have some disagreements with each other, their points of agreement and consensus contribute to our understanding of the mystery of the child in the gospel appearances. The same word shows up in many of their summaries. Children are unselfconscious, receptive, trusting, dependent, flexible, open to learning new ideas, evidencing trust and freshness, unsophisticated, and this word may tell the most, responsive. Responsive, meaning when God shows them what he is like, they pay attention and capture it sometimes in finger paints. In fact, children's responsiveness to God is demonstrated several times throughout the Bible. In the book of 1 Samuel, it opens in Israel that has just been through a period of 400 years of judges. During this time, we read that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The sons of the high priest Eli are corrupt and wicked at this time. Into this situation, a child, a little boy, Samuel, is brought by his mother Hannah to serve in the tabernacle. This is the first time that a child is placed in a position of service in the tabernacle. We read that this little boy wore a linen ephod, which is a priestly garment connected with the word of God. Not only does he serve in the tabernacle, he also hears from God and becomes a child prophet. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 3. This is what he hears. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called, Samuel, Samuel. And he said, here I am, and ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel again a third time, and he got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. It goes on to tell us that as Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. So Samuel hears from God, just a young boy, in the tabernacle, and for many years he prophesies to Israel. You don't even have to leave the book of 1 Samuel to find another example. This same book has a little boy named David who is the youngest son of Jesse, and he is chosen and anointed as a future king. And he goes on to fight a giant when the soldiers of Israel are not willing to do so. When the king is unsure of his plans, the little boy assures him, The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will save me from the Philistine. 
We can go on in 2 Kings to read about Naaman's servant girl, a little Israelite who was captured during an Aramean raid. She is prisoner to a man who invaded her home, presumably killing her family, and yet she looks on him with pity because he is suffering terribly from leprosy. She tells him of a prophet who can cure his illness. Or the young girl, Miriam, who bravely speaks to Pharaoh's daughter, who has just scooped the baby Moses from the basket in the river. She asks her, shall I go and get a nurse from the Hebrew woman, women to nurse him for you? Similarly, in the New Testament, we read of John the Baptist, who is still in his mother's womb and has leapt when Mary walks into his mother's house. Or the daughter of Jairus, who had died, but was brought back to life when she heard the voice of Jesus call, little girl, get up. And we must not forget God himself, brought low, taking on the form of a helpless infant who grows to a young child. When Jesus' parents take him to Jerusalem, he sits for hours with the teachers and the priests asking questions. And Luke tells us that everyone who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. So what's the big deal about children? Aren't these just special cases in the Bible, or are Jesus' words that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these something that we should consider further? Well, here's what God has been showing me lately. About a year ago, as I stood watching my daughter out on the ice with her skating coach, I had this realization. Countless parents, myself very much included, spend lots of time and money investing in our children's athletics and academics. But I wondered, if churches offered classes and coaching of sorts, would parents put in the same amount of time? So I decided to try it. I offered a Wednesday night class for an entire school year to about 15 children here at Lakeland. I wanted to disciple these kids and coach them to be bigger and better and smarter and even greater in the kingdom. And then God met us there in the space every hour, every Wednesday night. And I quickly realized that these children are not little future adults who need to be coached to be the best darn Christian 15 years from now. And they aren't problems to be solved with what to do with them and how to not mess them up. Don't get me wrong. They need direction and support. And they likely do have difficult problems that need to be solved. But that is not who they are. As Garrett said on Pentecost, they are not the future of the church. They are the church. And the amazing thing is that they bring something to the table that us adults desperately need. They are kingdom bearers. They are rich in wonder and imagination and trust. They are receptive and creative and genuine. You may have seen some of the work that this class did in last year's Advent Guide. I was asked to design the guide, so I invited the children to paint images that represented the story of Jesus' birth to them. It was incredible to watch. They are not hindered by self-doubt and criticism. They simply enjoy creating and expressing how they engage the story. Their art was beautiful, and it blessed me. I hope it blessed you, too, if you remember it. I brought a few pieces to share. There was a shield of God. There was a cross with a sad face. These are beautiful waves that are tipped with gold paint, and it says, God and I. This has multiple symbolism with the rainbow and the cross. There's a lot going on here. This, I am told, is God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit all over this sea of red, which I asked, and they said, well, that's blood, which seems to us adults very troubling, but to children, they can mix all these metaphors in a way that doesn't trouble them like it would for us. 
And there were lots of stars, of course, for Christmas. Hopefully they'll stay up, maybe not. So that was some of their art. Our time together and the blessing they brought me went beyond art. They asked really fascinating questions like, who made God? And they were responsive to complex concepts such as the Trinity. In fact, when I was researching how to present the Trinity to these kids, I read from several different people that the Trinity is actually a concept that's much easier for children to embrace than for adults, and that was true. One of my very favorite memories of our time together was the week we talked about Jesus' ascension, when he is taken from earth up to heaven after he has risen from the dead. Each child had spent time reflecting on the story and creating art to demonstrate what they had experienced. And Lainey Shepner asked to share the, with the group the picture she had drawn of Jesus leaving the people and traveling up to this beautiful kingdom that she had drawn above the clouds. She pointed to each of the onlookers that had been left on earth, and she passionately explained, she is saying, where are you going? And he is saying, we will miss you. And she is saying, how will we find you? Where will we find you? When she had finished her beautiful reflection, the room erupted into clapping by all the other children. This had never happened before and didn't happen again. But they were present with her in that moment, and it was resonating in a way that adults often find difficult to engage with. Sofia Cavalletti is this amazing woman in Italy who took the Montessori method of teaching, and she developed her Good Shepherd curriculum, and it allows children to engage stories through wonder and creativity, and I used some of her pieces on this Wednesday night class. She wrote these words regarding what Jesus has to say about us becoming like children. She said, Jesus was calling us to a lifelong journey of growth and transformation, of continually turning and changing and becoming always more like children. But I believe he was first calling us to look at them. In order to become like them, we must first come to know them. We must first find out who they are and especially what their relationship with God is like. What I set out to do with these children was turned on its head. I imagine these children did learn, and that is important and good. But what I realized is that we have in our midst a group of people who see God differently, a group of people who trust and enjoy in ways that we have lost touch with. They are humble in their understandings. There are no theological treatises composed around their dogmas but they have little trouble finding themselves on the lap of a king who wants the very best for them, who came to earth to be near to them and who died for them because they are not perfect, but fragile and broken in need of a savior just like the rest of us. In hindsight, I suppose these truths should not need to be reminded of. I have known this to be true for a very long time. You see, when I was three years old, my family and I were in the middle of a cross-country move from Kansas City to Albuquerque. And in the early hours of our second day's drive, somewhere in Oklahoma, a semi-truck driver fell asleep on the other side of the highway and crossed the grassy median and hit our Nissan Datsun head-on. It took two hours to extricate my mom from the car. My one-year-old brother was life-flighted to Oklahoma City. And I, who had been sleeping in the hatchback of the little car without a seatbelt, was fine. When I came to Lakeland, I was asked about my faith story, about when I became a believer. And I was surprised by how I just sobbed. The wreck still makes me sad. We all survived. In fact, the newspaper headline from that day reads, Trio Cheats Death. But it is a traumatic memory, as you can imagine. However, there is this beam of beautiful light in that memory, 
a truth that is so deep in my soul, it cannot be shaken. On that day, I knew that God was real. Not because he saved us, though he did, but it goes beyond life and death to truth. The three-year-old inside of me still wants to stand before you, jumping up and down, beaming with truth in a way that the grown-up me has long since forgotten. She wants you to know that he is real. This is what Jesus meant when he prayed, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. What if we adults, the theologians and the teachers and the parents and the caretakers, Lakelanders, are missing out on a rich blessing? What if these children have these truths beaming through them too? What if God's words are true, that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these? Now, the difficulty for us adults is our need for logic and order, for measurable, coherent answers and evidence. This is true for no one more than me. I am an engineer. I want spreadsheets. <laughs> Children do not go around painting pictures of God every day, nor do profound reflections earned a round of applause at the dinner table every night. My own children got into such a scuffle during the Pentecost service that I had to unleash an evil eye like nobody's business. <laughs> no, what I am suggesting is a shift in awareness that we would wait with anticipation when we are with children, that God would reveal something new to them, but also that we might return and become like them in order to draw near to God. Unless we change and become like children, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There are kingdom bearers among us. They are our models in their wonder and their imagination and their trust. We can, by observing them, remember what it was like to be receptive and creative and genuine. We must not anticipate profound theology, but we should instead acquaint ourselves with the ways that they find joy and how God can be found in the midst. G.K. Chesterton explains it like this. He says, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up does it again until he is nearly dead. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in the monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite for infancy, for we have sinned and grown, but our father is younger than we. My time as a mother and with these children at the Wednesday night class has shown me that parents do care and try very hard to figure out these little people. We pour our resources into them and hope that someday they will become incredible people who honor God and experience the good things of life. This is not wrong or bad, but it can be a little one-sided. What Jesus showed the disciples is that these children already honor God and experience the good things of life, and that we can enter into those things by being present with their responsiveness. Here's what the nuts and bolts of this concept are looking like to me these days. I am seeing that children understand that life is not a race. If I remember back to those lazy days of childhood, it does seem that the only worries that I had revolved around when was the next road trip to grandma's and if my friend could spend the night. 
So I'm trying. I'm trying to relinquish a tiny bit of my need to be constantly achieving and doing and go, go, going. I have begun to shed most every commitment that does not harken back to those lazy summer days. I want to be present and joy-filled for those things that stay on my calendar. I am also trying and often failing, admittedly, to listen more intently when children have something to share. This is a good practice to get into because it causes me to pause, which is good in and of itself, but to remember also what it is like to listen. And I've had the opportunity to hear some wonderful things. After the Good Friday service a few weeks ago, my daughter was lying in bed, and she suddenly asked me, what do you think the thieves said when they got to heaven? I told her I had never thought about that before, which was true. Then she drowsily said, I'm sure they felt very bad for what they had said to Jesus. I guess they just said they were sorry. I'm sorry. That is an interesting phrase that we remind children to say constantly, and then we fall out of practice with it ourselves. Jesus is close to children who have nothing to hide behind when they have done wrong. No diploma or achievements or power. When they stumble, they are simply at the mercy of the powerful. They can only say, I'm sorry. I hear her question about the thief who mocked his Savior as he died on a cross. And she knows that all he could say when he got to heaven was, I am sorry. I, too, am sorry more often. When I let these children in my midst remind me, Remind me that I am just a child of a king, and I must not forget it. If you would please stand, we'll close with the blessing that the Lord instructed Moses to give to Israel. My Lakeland friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. Thank you.